We're going to pick it up in John chapter 7 this morning. But before we do, let me give you a little bit of a history lesson, as I sometimes do. In 1763, um, in that year, 1763, few people would have predicted that in just a few short years, really by 1776, a, a war for independence would be unfolding in Britain's American colonies. The necessary ingredients for that kind of of massive discontent seemed lacking, at least on the surface. The colonies were, at that time, not in a state of economic crisis. In fact, just the opposite was true. In the 1760s, the colonies were relatively prosperous. Unlike what would happen years later in Ireland, um, no groups of American citizens were clamoring for freedom from England based on national identity. In fact, at that time in the colonies, there really was no distinct national identity. Most viewed themselves as loyal British citizens with a few exceptions from other nations. King George III was not particularly hated because he didn't act like a, like a dictator. Surely not to the degree that some of his predecessors had, Uh, especially in the previous hundred years, um, especially with regards to religious liberty, by the way. And what's more, the colonies actually were not very united at this time. Benjamin Franklin discovered this very clearly when he put together a a plan to to unite the states, the the colonies. He called it the, the Albany Plan of Union. He wrote it up in 1754, and it had the slogan, Join or Die. It would have brought these colonies together to to meet the common threat at that time of the the French and the Indians. But much to Franklin's embarrassment and and his disappointment, his plan was soundly defeated. Uh, The colonies did not want to stand united. How then, in just a few short years, did everything change? What happened to make these American colonists most of whom thought of themselves as loyal British subjects, what happened to make them want to break the the ties that bound them to their their motherland? What forces led these men in, in these 13 different colonies to set aside their differences and unanimously declare their independence? After all, less than a lifetime later, maybe 70 years or less, they would even declare war on each other in the north And in the South, much tension developed between the years of 1763 and 1776. So you probably remember the history lesson. The the colonists felt unfairly taxed. They felt watched over like children. They they felt ignored in their attempts to to address their grievances. Religious issues arose to the surface. Political theories became plans to be enacted, and and as usual, economics were at the core of the debate. For their part, the British rulers, they found the colonists unwilling to pay their fair share for the administration of the, at that time, massive British Empire. After all the citizens living back in England, uh, they actually paid more in taxes than than was required of any American during this entire time of crisis. This is not the first time that the American colonists found themselves at dispute with Great Britain, but this time cooler heads did not prevail. 
Every action by, by one side brought, a, brought an even equally strong and even sometimes stronger response from the other. And, and many of the events created that happened during these important years in the development of our nation created sharp divisions within the English people. Sharp divisions amongst the colonists themselves. And of course, sharp divisions between the British and the colonists. So that by the spring of 1775, the tensions were so high that they reached the point of no return and violence was inevitable. Violence was just around the corner. And so on March 20th of 1775, a devout Christian by the name of Henry, he spoke to a crowd of political delegates uh, at the Second Virginia Convention. And in the crowd that day were such men as George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, And he finished his speech by saying these words. I'm just going to read his conclusion. He addressed it to the king of England, and he said this. Three millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir... We shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and will rise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the brave or to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Besides, sir, we have no election. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. It is vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What could they have? Is life so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Shortly thereafter, Thomas Jefferson, who heard Patrick Henry declare those words, wrote the Declaration of Independence. George Washington, who also heard him give that speech, was chosen to lead the Continental Army and America's war for independence had begun. The tension in those days was palpable. You could feel it. It is said that that not a sermon was preached in those days that did not reference some aspect of of the political turmoil the colonies found themselves in. Imagine being at the center of it. Imagine being the face of the opposition. Imagine being the face of rebellion. Imagine if it really was you against the world, against the empire. That's how George Washington must have felt. Now imagine how Jesus felt. Washington had an army. He had politicians, statesmen really, like Jefferson and and Adams and, and Franklin who were backing him. He had great orators like Patrick Henry willing to stir up the crowds and and keep political feet to the fire, raise the funds necessary to fund a war. Jesus has lost nearly everybody. 
His followers have turned their backs and, and walked away. His own family has, has mocked him and refused to believe in his claims. He came to his own, and his own people, his own people did not receive him. All he's left with is a ragtag group of fishermen, a tax collector, a political zealot who is essentially a terrorist, a few other anonymous guys that we really don't know that much about, and, and a devil who will betray him, to use Jesus' own words. And the tension in Jerusalem was growing by the minute because the religious leaders are looking to kill him. He has a, a price on his head, and in about six months, they're going to succeed. They're going to put him on the cross. But his hour has not yet come. And so for now, Jesus lives to see another day. So let's pick it up in John chapter 7. I'm going to begin in verse 25 and read down through 36. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the, the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you'll seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Let's stop and pray. Lord, we are needy people, and so I pray that you would give us what we need this morning. Teach us from your word that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This scene here is a scene in, in which the either, either politically religious or religiously political tension continues to build, however way you want to word that. It is both religious and political, and it's those things put together, and, and the tension is continuing to build. Jesus has been in, incredibly bold in his teaching, and the people listening to him have become really more and more confused. In fact, here they changed the subject. If you remember from last week in the previous passage, he had been talking about the Sabbath. And he was talking about the, Jews, uh, the Jewish leadership's determination that he was, he was worthy of death for allegedly breaking the Sabbath laws. But now they drop that discussion entirely. And they start asking themselves and each other really a, a series of questions that really just serve to, to prove that when Jesus starts to reveal himself as the Christ, as the Messiah, very often chaos ensues. We see throughout the Gospels 
That when Jesus stands up and, and claims to be the Messiah, claims to be the Christ, the Savior of Israel, outright unbelievers, skeptics, doubters, frequently they are thrown into confusion. Sometimes they respond with questions like, who is this man? Other times they start arguing and, and quarreling among themselves, and, and even on a few rare occasions they actually make an attempt at arresting him. But then they can't find him, and somehow he's able to escape. Well, technically, here, there are three types of people in this passage. First, there are those who steadfastly reject Jesus. There was nothing that Jesus could do or say that would cause them to believe his claims. They steadfastly reject him. They're not really mentioned here, but his own disciples are kind of behind the scenes in this. The 11, the 12, including Judas. Those people are there. And then there's this confused crowd. They're the most vocal at this point. Um, that are, the, these are the people who don't know whether Jesus is the Christ or not. And then, of course, there are some others kind of mixed in, like Judas, who don't really fit into any of those neat categories at this point. But essentially, there's these three groups of people. So I just mentioned the argument from the previous verses that we looked at over the last few weeks, and that it was centered around the Sabbath and the arguments of the Sabbath. But Jesus pointed out, and we saw this last week, Jesus was pointing out to them that their real issue uh, with him was in his authority. Really, it was in his authoritative teaching. The things that he was saying was what Jesus was saying true. But now the discussion, which was filled, still it's filled with this kind of war tension, this discussion shifts from, is what Jesus is saying true, to his identity. Evidently, his teaching in the temple made enough of an impression on the, the locals who, who knew how the Jews operated. It made enough of an impression on the locals that some of them wondered aloud whether the reason that that Jesus actually hadn't been arrested might be because the Jews actually knew that he was the Christ? They're murmuring about a conspiracy here, in, in really in verses 25 and 26. See, most of, the, most of the discussion didn't really revolve around Jesus himself, but rather around the, around the politics of the situation. And so this leads them to ask a political question. A political question. Look at verses 25 and 26 again. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Here he is, speaking openly. But they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now, on the face of it, these questions, or really this final question, is not a, it's not a bad question, Right? And over the rest of the book, we can see as his, his arrest and, and his trial and his conviction, as, as it's all played out, we see that there really is a conspiracy here. That they really are trying to shut up their political enemies. But there's a detail that we need to see that kind of helps us to understand what's happening. And, and that is this. John distinguishes the various groups of people here. Um, so there's, back in verse 15, he mentions the Jews. And he distinguishes them from the crowd in verse 20. 
But now here in verse 25, he introduces a very specific, he says, some of the people of Jerusalem. So there's the religious leadership. There's the crowd who, who are people from in town, out of town. They're all there for the Feast of Booths, for the, for the Thanksgiving celebration. There's the crowd. And then there's some of the locals, the, the people of Jerusalem. So remember, the city's full of tourists at this time, pilgrims really, who are visiting for this Feast of Booths. But these people in verse 25 are the locals. They live in Jerusalem. Here's why this is important. Because... Remember, the Jews represent the theological issues at stake. Look back in verse 15. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The answer to that question is this. Because he's the Son of God, that's how he has learning. Because he actually wrote the Bible, that's how he has learning. Because the Word was made flesh, Because Jesus was with God in the beginning, and he was God. That's how this man has learning. This is a theological issue that's causing great tension in Jerusalem at this time. How is it that this man has learning? Because he's the Son of God. As a result of this, uh, really the crowd represents, uh, really kind of presents us with with the faith issues that are at stake. So if the Jews kind of represent the the theological issues, who is this man? The crowd represents the faith issues. Remember, Jesus is calling them to believe in his message, namely that he was sent by God the Father in whom there is no falsehood. And we looked at that last week. And then the locals, the, the people of Jerusalem here, they present the political issues that are at stake. Here's what they think the political issue is. This is what they think the political issue is. Their Messiah, the Savior that they were looking for, they believe, was someone who would defeat the occupying Romans, just like Moses defeated the Egyptians, only even better because they're already in the Promised Land. So their their Messiah would actually drive out the Romans. That's what they think is going to happen. And if that were true, that's what nearly everyone was waiting for, that kind of Messiah. If that were true, then it seems likely to them that the Jews are just trying to, just trying to silence their political opposition. See, the Jews had this uneasy alliance with the Romans, which essentially meant that the Romans allowed them to stay in this kind of political religious authority. They let them have their temple, and as long as they paid their exorbitant taxes and did what the, what the Romans wanted, they could continue in power. They could continue in authority. As long as they sent the tax money back to Rome, they were okay with these Pharisees, these, the Jewish leadership staying in power. And so the Jews had this alliance with the Romans like this. And so the locals, these are those who live inside the beltway, Um, They understood how the Jews operated. They're beginning to suspect that maybe they were conspiring against Jesus simply in order to maintain their own power. And so essentially they begin to ask themselves, is this going to be a political assassination? Is that what's happening here? Are they just trying to protect themselves? 
Remember, the Jews have been seeking it all the more to kill him for quite some time now. But as verse 26 indicates, there, there really is much confusion even in this group. So look at 26 again, and here he is speaking openly. They say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? These people know how local Jerusalem politics worked. They're surprised that Jesus hasn't been shut down. And this phrase, this phrase, can it be? When they say, can it be that this really is the Christ? This is actually an accusation. They're actually accusing they're questioning the Jewish leadership, throwing accusations out there. Now, this, this doesn't mean that they're starting to believe. Not in the way of faith. Not in the way of believing that Jesus is the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world. Instead, all of this points to this growing confusion and chaos that comes with those who, who reject Jesus' message. There's a simple answer to their question. We'll get at that in a minute. But first, Jesus must address their preconceived notions. These are their preconceived notions. Look at verses 27 to 29. They say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I've come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I, came, I come from him, and he sent me. This is where we see that, that these people, even, even through their own confusion, they're beginning to come to a conclusion as to the, the messianic identity of Jesus. See, right there in verse 27, they give really the, the first of three preconceived notions, in this chapter at least, of what the Messiah would look like. Let me give you all three. All three preconceived notes. This is what they think the Messiah is going to look like. It's verse 27. Listen to this again. We know where this man comes from, but when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. That's their first preconceived notion. The second is down in verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? We'll get at that in a moment. And the third is actually down in verse 42. We're not going to get there today, but I want to show you it. Verse 42 says, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Now that, that third one, that third preconceived notion in verse 42, they're actually right about that. And, and, and notice where they root it. In the scripture. In the first two, they're just, they're just speaking. But in the third one, they actually root it in scripture. Scripture tells us that he's coming from Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, they're right about that, and we'll get at that one uh, in the coming weeks. But in these first two, they're completely wrong. The second one really just shows their confusion. But they are dead wrong on this first one. So back to the, the first preconceived notion, verse 27. What, what they're saying is this. This guy came from Nazareth. His family now lives in Capernaum. And he's been working as really as an itinerant preacher all over Galilee for a couple of years now. We know where he's from. We know all about him, they're saying, as opposed to the Messiah that they were waiting for. This guy doesn't fit their mold. This man, they will call him a couple of times, doesn't fit their mold. See, a, a tradition had developed um, in Jerusalem by the rabbis, or kind of taught by the rabbis around this time, that said that the Christ, the Messiah, 
was, and this is how it was worded, he was waited, waiting concealed and someday would suddenly burst upon the world and no one would know where he had come from. That's what the rabbis taught and, and logically speaking, since they knew where Jesus came from, then he could not be the Messiah. He could not be the Christ. The problem is, they didn't really know where he came from. This idea of preconceived notions is what John battled at the very beginning of his gospel, the very beginning of his writing. See, we, John's readers, those reading John's gospel, are aware that Jesus is actually the Word made flesh. We are aware that John is telling us that he is the creator of all things, that he is the source of light, the light of men, the one who is from the Father, full of grace and truth. He told us that right in the first 18 verses of chapter 1. See, from the very beginning of the gospel according to John, John undermines any preconceived notions you might have that Jesus was simply a good teacher. Or that he was some kind of rebel or revolutionist like like Che Guevara or Patrick Henry. No, right off the bat, John makes the claim, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John makes this claim right in his introduction. This is who we're going to talk about, he says. The true identity of Jesus, beyond being Joseph and Mary's son, the true identity of Jesus is so clear to those of us who are are reading John's words here. It should be clear to us, but it's completely hidden from these citizens of Jerusalem. The guy that these, these people repeatedly refer to as this man has been called God right from chapter 1, verse 1. This man, they call him, over and over again. They're saying, this guy, this guy, this guy. This man is God, John tells us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, as Christians, this is our central claim, that Jesus is God. If Jesus is God, then all of his claims must be true. If Jesus is God, then all of his claims must be true. Look at his response again in verses 28. Jesus proclaimed, as he's teaching in the temple, he said, You know me and you know where I uh, come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So he proclaims, or, or better, he pronounces this, he pronounces this statement while he's in the temple. Probably in the midst of his teaching is how this is worded. They're muttering about him in the back of the room, and he proclaims this while he's up front teaching. And and this first statement, um, you know me and you know where I come from, it's probably a question, or or really a better, it's probably an incredulous statement. You know me? You know where I come from? 
And once again, he makes this claim to have been sent by the one who is true, as we saw last week. Obviously, this is about God the Father. But he offers up this harsh rebuke. Him, you do not know. He's standing in the temple in Jerusalem, teaching. He's standing in the close proximity to the holiest place on earth, as far as the Jews were concerned. And he says to God's people, these Jews, him, you do not know. This is the root of their problem. They don't know God the Father. How on earth would they be able to recognize God the Son? They don't know the Father. How could they know the Son? They may know Joseph and Mary's son, but they don't know Jesus' Father. And to know the Father is to know the Son. To know the Father is to know the Son. There are many today um, who will say that the, the Jesus of the New Testament is not like the God of the Old Testament. You've heard these arguments before. There's an author, uh, an atheist. His name is Richard Dawkins. You've probably heard of him. He's in the news every once in a while. Listen to what he said. He said, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infants infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. This is what he said about the God of the Old Testament. And of Jesus, he said this. He said, the, the point I wanted to make was that Jesus was a good man and that a man of his time had to be religious because everybody was, but I suspect that if he had the knowledge that we have today, he probably would have been an atheist and he probably would have been a good man. Jesus would have been an atheist, he said, if he was as smart as I am, is what he's saying. And Jesus would probably respond with the same thing he said in Mark chapter 10, verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. To know the Father is to know the Son. See, as Jesus says in verse 29, without Jesus, they simply cannot know the Father. Without Jesus, they simply cannot know the Father. These people think they know God simply because they're Jews, simply because they are God's chosen people, simply because they have God's old covenant written down, simply because belong, to them belong the priests, simply because to them belong the law and the prophets, simply because to them belong the temple and the holy of holies. They think they know God. But if they had consulted with the scriptures, the scriptures that they claimed as their own, they would see that Jesus' claims were, in fact, true. Instead of spouting these false notions and opinions about God, they needed to listen to the one who, who knows him, who came from him, and who was even, he says, sent by him. But look at the sharp contrast between verses 28 and 29. At the end of verse 28, he says, Him you do not know. I know him. I come from him. He sent me. This isn't arrogant or prideful. It's the truth. And it brought a reaction. Actually, it brought a pair of reactions. A pair of reactions. Look at verse 
30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So our narrator here, John, in writing this, as he's narrating this story, he breaks into the dialogue with this vague statement in verse 30 about the initial response. So verse 30, in this verse, he mentions that that immediately attempts are made at arresting Jesus. When he makes that statement, when he says, you don't know him, but I know him, immediately attempts are made to arrest him, but they fail. So we don't know what it looks like. We don't know what those attempts were. Maybe they attempted a, a citizen's arrest. Uh, but more likely, these, these people of Jerusalem, the locals here, they called the cops. Uh, they, they called the temple authorities who had their own police force. They had their own officers, it says down in verse 32. And so we see it take place in verse 32. Uh, but, but before we get to the, that response, that reaction of trying to arrest Jesus... In verse 30, John is making a point. He says it this way to make a point. Jesus had just made some especially serious claims that required a response. It required a response of the Jewish leadership. You don't know him, but I know him, and I've come from him, and he sent me. That's a very serious claim, and it requires this serious response, but But no one is able to lay a hand on him, John says, because God is sovereign. Because he wouldn't allow, wouldn't yet allow this to happen. He will, and he will soon allow it to happen, but not yet. In verse 30, I think it's vague about how it all kind of played out. Because the point is not so much on the arrest itself or how Jesus avoided it. In fact, it doesn't tell us how he avoided it. Just says that no one laid a hand on him. Rather, really, the the point there in verse 30 is on their reaction to his claims. Jesus has made it clear to the people that they do not know God. And John makes it clear that they can't stop him either. Jesus has just said to to the people of Jerusalem, those people who live probably within sight of the temple, you don't know God and you can't stop him either. But the other reaction is, is a little bit, but only a little bit, more favorable. Look again at verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? It's just a little bit more favorable. Many people in the crowd were starting to believe in him, John tells us. Now, before we jump to conclusions... We have to actually consider what it meant to them that this could actually be their Messiah, who it was that they thought they were believing in. It it meant political leadership. It meant that, that he would stand up and say, there is no retreat but in submission and slavery. That he would stand up and say, our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable and let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. To them, it meant that he would stand up and say, is is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? 
They wanted him to stand up and say, Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. Instead, Jesus' message was simply, Give me death, except no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord, and I will give you real liberty. I will give you real freedom. I will give you real peace. They wanted a political savior. They wanted a savior as good as Patrick Henry or as good as George Washington or Thomas Jefferson. As good as those men were, the salvation that they offered that we still feel the effects of was temporary at best. Our nation is the way it is because of men like that. But it's temporary. The salvation that Jesus offered is different than that. No one but Jesus could remove their chains of sin. No one but Jesus can set them free from the slavery of iniquity. But look at this statement again. He says, John tells us, yet many of the people believed in him. This should show us, more than anything else, the importance of repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. Mere belief that Jesus is who he claims, who he claims to be, that kind of belief never saved anybody. Oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. James tells us the demons do too. We read last week in Mark chapter 1, that demon knew exactly, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He believed in who Jesus was. It didn't save him at all. Mere belief that Jesus is who he claims never saved anybody. Jesus calls us not only to believe, but to turn from our life of sin and to trust in him for forgiveness and salvation. To consistently be running from our sin and running to Christ for freedom. Well, we can, we can tell from the rest of this statement uh, where they stand. This man, as they call him, has evidently not performed enough miracles to be the Christ. Uh, And so they challenged him to pass this second test of Messiahship. Really what they're saying here, they're they're asking him to conform to their their second preconceived notion of who he is. You got to perform more miracles for us. You got to perform more miracles for us. At the end of John's gospel, um, He makes a very interesting statement. As John is signing off, the very final two verses of his gospel says this. He says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He is declaring these things are true. And then he says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did plenty of miracles, plenty of signs and wonders. These people are stubbornly choosing not to repent and believe in him for salvation. Jesus did plenty of signs. There were so many that that John said, "You, you can't even contain the world, couldn't even contain the books. How about every life that was changed, that Jesus changed? We could write that story. How about 
How about having the whole world in his hands? Holding everything together. We could write that story. There's so much that Jesus has done and is doing that we can't even, we can't even fathom it. We, we, we couldn't even write it all down. Jesus is saying here, I've done enough and you still reject me. And so in verse 32, the authorities step in to take control of the situation, to take him into custody. But we know what the outcome will be. He's already told us back in verse 30. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And, and their arrival, the arrival of these officers, these police officers here, temple police officers, they prompt Jesus to make what really can only be con- described, at least to these people, as a, as a confusing prophecy. Look at verse 33. Read 33 to 36. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You uh, will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, I, I cannot, you cannot come. Jesus makes these two statements that, that confuse his opponents. So first, in verse 33, he indicates that his mission is to be there for a little longer. So you can picture the scene, right? The police are standing there trying to de-escalate, trying to take control of the situation, and Jesus is saying, thanks, fellas, I'm going to be here a little bit longer. And it works. It works. Those trying to arrest him are unsuccessful because his hour has not yet come. And when it does come, he says he will return to the Father. And if you remember from our look at the earlier sections of this chapter, he's about six months from the cross. And so he says, I'll be with you a little bit longer. About six months it ends up being, just a little bit longer. And his second confusing statement that confuses them is really verse 34. Look at that again. He says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. A little longer and I'll leave, but you can't come with me. He's saying two things here. First, he's, he's going to ascend to the Father. He says in, or actually, uh, the Bible says in Psalm 110, verse 1, and then it quotes throughout the, Old, uh, the New Testament. Psalm 110, 1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That place of glory is reserved only for Jesus Christ. He will say even to his own disciples, just a little bit after this, in John chapter 13, verse 33, he will say to his own, he will say, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. This is not distinct for believers and unbelievers. No one except for Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father. Jesus Christ, he's going to die. He's going to rise again. And he's going to ascend to the right hand of God the Father in heaven. But then also, to these unbelievers standing there in front of him, he'll tell them, as he he will say more explicitly in chapter 8, verse 21, he's going to say again, 
821 says, So he said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. To those who are stuck in unbelief, trapped in in hardened hearts, refusing to repent, Jesus says you're going to die in your sins. And this will just leave these people stuck in in pride and confusion as the chapter or this section ends. Where are you going that that you're going to hide from us? Look at uh, verse 35. Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that, that that we will not find him? Look at the pride in this statement. Where do you think you can go that you can hide from us? Are you going to the dispersion? There's mockery there of Gentiles. Are you going out? Are you going out to preach to the Greeks? Is that where you think you're going? You think you're going to hide from us? You're going to have to go to the Greeks. There's some irony in there, especially when you read Acts. And then I like how it ends. What does he mean by saying, you'll seek me and you'll not find me, and and where I am you cannot come? There's almost them going like this. What's this guy talking about? Here's the thing. This really doesn't need to be this confusing. Paul will summarize it like this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, like some of these people. For I delivered to you as in first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's where he's going. That he was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it's not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed." This is what Jesus is talking about. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And some of you are going to die in your sins, he will say. No, you can't come to the right hand of God the Father. But on the other hand, to those who believe in him, to those who are called by his name, who, who he gave the right, whom, to whom he gave the right to be called children of God, that where I am, you may be also, he says. Where I'm going, I'm going to come back for you. That where I am, you may be also. That's the difference between believers and unbelievers. That's the difference in what Jesus is talking about here. He's telling them, you got to believe in me. you got to repent and believe. Let's pray. Lord, as we wrestle through these things to understand, I pray that you would help us, um, that your spirit would work in our hearts and our minds through the week as we ponder these things, as we meditate on your word. 
that we might understand Jesus' words, who he is, that we might see the escalating tension in, in Jerusalem at that time and, and the escalating tension even in our own nation between believers and unbelievers, in our own world between the world and your children, that escalating tension as the world try and, tries to stop the spread of the gospel, as the world tries to, tries to stop, as the systems of the world try to stop the kingdom of God, we know that it will not be successful. And so, Lord, we cling to you. We cling to your promises. And, Lord, we believe. We believe that Jesus is the Christ. Help our unbelief. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.